Amen. Let's turn to God's Word, to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, on page 756. If you don't have um, a Bible, there's one at the door, and I would recommend you have one because we're going we're gonna to read the whole chapter, but we are going to jump around it uh, a little bit. When Richard read Daniel, uh, I was amazed at the wee bit at the end of Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel said, I was deeply troubled by my thoughts, which given the dream he just had, I'm, I'm not surprised. But this is a passage that is both deeply troubling and also deeply encouraging. I don't know, um, those of you who are teenagers, I don't know if your parents have ever said to you, right, come on, we've got we to talk. Or um, maybe someone, maybe someone you, you love and who loves you says, we've got to sit down, we have to talk. And it can be a very uncomfortable talk when someone sits down and tells you something that hurts you, tells you something that's wrong, something that goes really deep. Well, what's happening here is that God, through Jeremiah, is speaking to his people. Jeremiah was commanded to write all these prophecies on a scroll and have them read to the nation. As you go through the book, you discover that the scroll is destroyed but rewritten. The first 23 years of his ministry are written down, and it goes up to chapter 20. Um, the fact that there are different personal pronouns used, like he, she, single, and plural, indicate it's a collection of sayings, and it's kind of like a where well, used to do albums, greatest hits album uh, of Jeremiah, greatest hits volume one, and this reflects the early part of his ministry, much of which is drawn from Hosea. And this chapter in particular is a passionate yet controlled appeal to return to God. This is God sitting down and saying to us, talking to us, and asking, why are you just so discouraged? Why are you so worn out? Why are you so spiritually dry? And he uses a, a series of images which are repeated throughout the chapter and also at other places in the book. So let's begin just by reading at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them. So these are a series of pictures that are given. And it's the, the bride against the prostitute, or later on in verse 24, the wild donkey um, describing uh, an animal that has just gone wild. And it's just, in, in all these images, God is giving us a juxtaposition of two different things that his people either have been or have become, and he's urging them to return so the bride, the relationship with God begins like a marriage. There's a readiness to go anywhere, to put up with anything as long as they could be with their partner. Israel was willing to go in the desert. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert. Now that's referring to the Exodus. You were prepared to go there. You were. You were holy to the Lord. You were faithful to me. And he uses a word hesed which means covenant faithfulness. And the reverse of that was that God fiercely 
protected her. Israel was his first fruits. James 1.18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So here is a relationship. It's described in the Old Testament many times in this way and also in the New of the, the bride and the bridegroom. But Israel turns away from God and becomes an adulteress. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They, became, they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. The words that are used indicate ingratitude and stupidity. Going after Habel. Habel's a word that's just pointless. It was, it was destructive. Later on, they're described as a wild donkey in verse 24. A wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat. Who can restrain her? It's a very graphic picture of an animal on heat. And he's describing his people like that. Or later on in verse 32, does a maiden forget her jewelry, a bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. In those days, you, you didn't have a, a wedding ring. If you were a bride, you had a bridal sash. Um, it would never be the sash my father wore. It would be the sash my mother wore. It was a bridal sash, and it indicated that you were a married woman. But now it's saying Israel has forgotten her sash. Israel has forgotten her married attire. 2 Corinthians 11.2, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Maybe some here have experienced what it's like to be betrayed by the person who promised to be faithful to you for the rest of their days. Maybe you have been like that. Maybe you have to imagine what that would be like, the devastation, the gut-wrenching heartbreak that the person who stood in a building like this and committed themselves to you forever has betrayed you and gone against you. Well, that's what God says about his people, that having been brought to him, we've turned away. But they say, we don't do that. If you go to verse 23. How can you say I'm not defiled? I've not run after the bales. See how you behaved in the valley. Consider what you have done. You're like a, a, a swift she-camel running here and there. They were saying, we didn't behave like that. We have religious rituals, and God says, that's no use. The religious rituals without me are no use. What was the fault? What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me, says the Lord? Because that's the implication. That's where, if you like, the dishonor to God comes when his people turn away from him because they're saying to him, you're not enough. You're not enough, Lord. The priests, the lips of a priest, says Malachi 2.7, ought to preserve knowledge. And from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. There's a hypocrisy in false religion 
There's a hypocrisy in the church that turns away from the living Christ. Romans 2.20, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge of truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? Occasionally I come across people who... Um, have been deeply, deeply wounded by the church. And rather than just say to them, I used to kind of go in and say, no, 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 forget that, forget that. But rather than do that now, I listen to what they have to say because some have had horrendous experiences like the woman who listened to a preacher preaching the glories of Christ and then afterwards he, he sought to abuse her. How is that possible? The, the, the level of devastation in trust in that is absolutely appalling. Sometimes you just see it in, in, in different ways as well. And God says this is the fault of the priests because as we saw this morning, knowledge is so important and they're not teaching the knowledge of God's word. Calvin says that we are very prone by nature to hypocrisy. We, we are. We, we put on masks. We find ourselves acting in a hypocritical way. And once it starts, it continues. It's like you, when you tell one lie, it often leads to many, many others. The scholars are told that you know many things, but you do not know the Lord. In Ephesians 3, 19, to know the love that surpasses knowledge that you may, may be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. The rulers ignored the rules and the prophets thought that Yahweh and Baal were one. It, it, it's a picture of a church that is in a real mess. And then from verse 4 to verse 7. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels, no one lives. I brought you to a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. And that's the two pictures of the fertile land and the desert land. I've not been to Israel, but I'm told that there are areas of it that are very, very fertile. There are areas in Egypt around the Nile which are very fertile, but there are also very bleak areas. And where God's people came from Egypt to head to Palestine, to Israel, it's a very barren area. And God is saying to his people, I brought you through that. I brought you through a land of drought and darkness, a land where nobody travels and nobody wants to live. And I brought you into a fertile land. And what have you done to that fertile land? You've corrupted it and you have polluted it. The fertile land, God kept and God keeps all his promises. No matter, says Paul to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1.20, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us, to the glory of God. You are the choice vine, he says. And the, the word that's used there is a, 
for a grape, a red high quality grape that would make the best wine. And God says, that's what you are. You are fruitful. But what have you become? You've become a desert because the beautiful land has been polluted by pagan worship. And sometimes in our own lives, we can feel that we have become like a spiritual wilderness, a bit of a desert. We're not the good seed that's producing 30 and 60 and 100 times what has been sown in us. We have been choked by the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the hardness of our own hearts. And we are happy to have it that way. McShane's argument that I would rather beg bread than want success. And what he meant by that was just spiritual success in his own life. Our lives, this church, should be a place of abundant fruitfulness, not a desert. And then on to verse 8. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Kittim and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. There's the contrast, the glory versus the worthless idols. What's the glory? It's this, this is God, by the way, bringing a formal charge like in a court of law. He's saying, this is what I've got against you. This is what you have done. The glory is what you should reverence, what you should respect, what you should adore. But instead, what you've done is you've swapped it. There's a glory in God that calls us, causes us to fall down and worship. It's heavy, but not in the sense of a burden, in the sense of awesome and mind-blowing and spirit-overwhelming. But us, we exchange it very easily. Christians can do this too. The prophet says that whole nations and groups are loyal to their gods. Kittim, that's the Western Isles. Now, I'm not very sure that he had Lewis in mind, but that's what it means. The Western Isles, uh, probably the United Kingdom, to be honest. Kedar was an Arab tribe living in the desert. There's Cyprus from the west to the east. And he's saying that these people are loyal to their gods, which are not gods at all. And here is the real God. And my people are not loyal to me. They turn to Baal, he says, which is a, a, a corruption of the term Baal. Baal's the Hebrew noun for Lord and Master. And here they're saying, you're making a false god, an image into your Lord and Master. And this is such an incredible thing. that Look at verse 12. It causes the heavens to shudder with great horror. We may see things in this world which are really horrific and really horrible, but this is really horrible. The abandonment of the gospel is so evil. 
And then look what happens. Verse 27, they say to wood, you are my father, and to stone you give me birth. They've turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they're in trouble, they say, come and save us. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. God's people are capricious. What we mean by that is they, they think they can change course at will. Why do you go about so much? Verse 36, changing your ways. You'll be disappointed by Egypt as you were by Assyria. You will also leave that place with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those you trust. You will not be helped by them. We make excuses, but the bottom line is verse 8. We did not ask, where is the Lord? And one of the things I want to suggest that some of us as Christians struggle so much sometimes. There's a struggle in the Christian life. But sometimes we have not asked where is the Lord. We have exchanged his glory for worthless idols. We have been corrupted by different images. We care more for the material possessions that we have than we care for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the things over the years I've seen many times, one of the things I have to watch in my own heart is how subtly you see the devil taking Christians away so that where there is a zeal and a joy and an enthusiasm and an in seeking after God's word and a longing for Christ, it's not that they commit some massive sin and it all goes wrong. It's just that bit by bit by bit, Things change, and other things become more important, and little habits that were good disappear, and habits that are bad swiftly come in, and we've just forgotten. We forget. Nobody asks, where is the Lord? We just assumed that we knew. We assumed we knew what God wanted. We mistook our own desires for the will of the Lord. And we've exchanged the glory of God for worthless idols. Again, it's a bit like being in a relationship and maybe um, you're quite comfortable together and you're getting on okay and you're in a routine and you keep in the routine and you keep in the routine and you keep in the routine. And then maybe you stop appreciating each other. Maybe you're somebody who you don't, appreciate your partner as much as you used to. And it just, you gradually just grow more and more distant until one day you, you realize what's happened. And maybe the best thing that would happen in that instance is, is you come to appreciate them again for who they are and for what they've done. But that's what God is saying about his people, that we've grown distant from him and we've never asked We've never said, where are you? We just assumed we knew. And then there's the image in verses 14 to 19. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? Lions have roared. They have growled at him. They have laid waste his land. His towns are burned and deserted. Also the men of Memphis and Taphenes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking your God when he led you out of the way? Now why go to Egypt to drink water from the Shehor? And why go to Assyria to drink water from the river? Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you 
when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord. It's two different images there again. The freedom, and that's meant to be someone dancing free, uh, a ballerina. They say, I will not serve you, I am free. But sometimes we live under the illusion of freedom. There's a cartoon I used to have that I, I really liked, actually. It had two fish. It was from Private Eye. It had two fish in a goldfish bowl. And one of them saying to the other, can you really believe that there are people who think there's a world out there? And some of us, we've just got captured in this tiny little world, which is so far away from the glory and the majesty of God. It's C.S. Lewis' famous image of the child who's grown up and never really known anything else, but plays, lives in a slum and plays in a pool of mud just outside his door and is invited to go to the beach, to the most gorgeous, glorious beach, but doesn't know what a beach is. I'd rather stick in the mud. They, fr they are free. We say we are free. Long ago, you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. You see, the freedom there they were claiming was we're freedom from God. We're free to do what we want. That's such an appalling freedom. Because we become slaves. He goes on to describe how we run from one master to another. They've left their true protection. There's the punishment, the Assyrian lions. It's not that God punishes. This is, again, here, this is the same as in Romans 1. It's not that God sends lightning to punish us. It's that our own wickedness punishes us. So in verse 17, have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God? We say we have no responsibility, but backsliding leads to disaster. It leads back to Egypt. It leads back to slavery. You've lost all awe of God. You should consider verse 19 and realize how evil and bitter it is for you. He goes further. He says it leads to murder and bloodshed. It's not just about you. When you turn away from God, it impacts and affects everyone else. When God is dethroned, nothing is unthinkable. Look at verse 34. On your clothes, men find the lifeblood of the innocent poor, though you did not catch them breaking in. They've become bloodthirsty. They have become responsible for deaths of people because of injustice. Dostoevsky's famous quote, if God does not exist, then all things are permissible. We may say, well, no, listen, back off. That's not me. I'm not involved in this. Yes, you are. You are involved in a culture in which millions of children in the womb are killed every year. And that's justified. And indeed, so perverse is our culture as our culture become. I never thought it would quite get this bad. But last year, there's a movement started called Celebrate Your Abortion. It's absolutely appalling. But think of the opposite end of the scale. 
When the Dutch first permitted euthanasia, people assumed, people said, oh, who knows what's going to happen? And now people saying, oh, it's, it's a very civilized thing. There is a bill that attempted to get through the Dutch parliament. It's failed, thankfully, but it will come back. And one day, perhaps, for me, even the thought of it is horrendous. It's a bill that would give to every person over 70 a euthanasia pill. They wouldn't have to go to a doctor. They would just be given one and they could use it. Or someone else could use it for them. 10% of euthanasia in the Netherlands is involuntary. You know what that means? The person didn't want to be euthanized. But other people considered it good for them. There's blood on your clothes. The lifeblood of the innocent poor. Because it is the poor that usually suffer the most in these circumstances. And those are the extremes. There are other things as well. You think of the return of slavery to this society in in terms of uh, sex trafficking. You think of the devastation that is caused because so many children are growing up without good parental examples at home. And God says, the crown of your head, this is the crown of your head, this is what you glory in. They've shaved the crown of your head. There's a protestation of innocence. You say, I'm innocent. He's not angry with you. But God says, yes, I will pass judgment on you because you say, I have not sinned. Their guilt sits lightly. Why do you go about so much changing your ways? There's, as do their promises and commitment. There's no room for brokenness. We have to be in control. We have to be the ones that have it all together. But what if it's not all together? What if it's an illusion? What if it's disappointment and disillusion? He, he says in this passage, basically, you're so bad, you could teach prostitutes. And that was a, a huge insult in that culture. And he says, what do you do? You return with your head in your hands. You are enslaved. Words of advice, no matter how compelling or arrestingly put, are not heeded by an addict. One of the things that is just heartbreaking for me about, about this city is that last year the number of drugs deaths shot up. Why? Because older people who are taking drugs are now dying. People who've been on uh, methadone for decades, they're now dying. And that's, they expect the level to increase. No matter how compelling or arrestingly put, words of advice are not heeded by an addict. And God says to his people, that's the route that you go down when you turn away from me. Look at verse 13. This is the the final one, the, the fountain and the broken cisterns. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God is the fountain of living water. The source of all things good. The source of light. The source of life. This fountain has its own water. Its own source. It's a fountain that's always open. It's a fountain that's pure. It's a fountain that's life-giving. And if you discovered that fountain, if you knew that fountain, you would protect it and keep it. Why, Why do you think that so many cities in the world are built around rivers? In fact, I can't think of any that are not. Because... You need water. It's such a precious thing. 
and you need good water, and you need pure water, and you need clean water. And in a spiritual sense, we need to be able to draw on the fountain of life. And the, the resources are not from within us. The resource comes from out with. But you've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, says God, and you've gone to the broken cisterns where the water is foul and the water is poisonous. Now the horror for Jeremiah is this. How is it that God's own people, having tasted of the fountain of life, are going back to this stale and disgusting water? What does that say about God that his people say, well, we prefer this to you? And that's why there's so much pain in all of this. Now, there's an argument that people have about God feeling things and Uh, I, I don't want to get into that argument, but I do want to say this. It is absolutely clear with the imagery that is used that it is intended to convey a real sense of hurt and offense to the living God. Here is a God who loves us. Here is a God who gives us absolutely all that we need. And we turn away from the fountain of life to the broken cisterns. What's the solution? We return. All we like sheep have gone astray. We come back to the fountain. Revelation 21.6, he said, to me it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I'll give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Verse 22 in, in Jeremiah 2 says this, so you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap The stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. It's like, I don't know if you've ever done this, that you, you weren't supposed to be doing something and then somehow you made a mess and it got, something got stained and oh, how am I going to clean this? How am I going to get rid of the evidence? And you can't. And God says you can't. But he says you can come to me And be cleansed. If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Out of the believer's heart, says Jesus, shall flow rivers of living water. We, the devil is so manipulative, and our hearts are so deceitful that we would so many times prefer the cesspit than we do the, the beauty and the clarity of Christ. C.S. Lewis, as you know, talks about drippings of grace and how we need to keep coming to Christ. And here is something that I would want to encourage Christians with. I am, I would say overall about the church in Scotland overall, I'm amazed that God hasn't judged us more because I think we we have turned away from so much and we've We've turned to idols and we've turned to the, the, the gods of this culture. And we've lost sight of Christ and the beauty of Christ. But for those of us who either individually or collectively recognize that and we wonder if God would ever take us back, that is the great grace of the gospel and the great news that though we have treated him in such an abominable way, 
yet he always welcomes back the prodigal. Jeremiah had to live through some tough times. He had to see some tough things. If you come to the fountain of life, you can live, not just cope with, but you can overcome the bitter disappointments that exist in life because they keep driving you back to the source of life. A famous uh, free church minister, Robert Monroe McShane's friend, Andrew Boner, wrote in his diary one day, his diaries are really very moving, and he wrote in his diary one day, memorable to me as the anniversary of my beloved Isabella's departure to be with Christ. He was writing on the anniversary of his wife's death, and he was reflecting upon that. And then he wrote this, and now my son's son, his grandchild, a child of three days old has been taken from them. And he wrote these beautiful words, broken cisterns, broken cisterns all around, but the fountain remains full. In life, lots of things will be taken from you. In life, sometimes it can be so draining. But we have a fountain. We can come to the fountain of life. We can know that there is a God who brings justice. We can know that there's a God who hears the cries of his people. We can know that we can cast all our burdens on him because he cares for us. You know, um, I don't know how this works in films, but I think this is generally true, that many of the, the films that we look at, where there's goodies and baddies, the baddies are actually usually more attractive. You know, think of Robin Hood and, uh, with Kevin Costner and Alan Rickman. Well, the Sheriff of Nottingham was a much more interesting character. There's a little bit of that, I think, in real life where you find that people will choose to go away that they, they, they even know that is bad. And I think that's because ultimately they don't see the attractiveness and the excitement in what is good because they are sold a lie. Well, if we are Christians, if we are God's people, let's make sure that that is not the case. And if we are not Christians, where are you taking your life from? Where are you taking your, your, your source of joy and enjoyment from? Where do you take your light from? You can come to the fountain of life and drink from that through Jesus Christ. Or you can drink at your own broken cisterns. But they are broken and they never retain it. The choices between having l rivers of living water flowing from you or being stale and ultimately cold and corrupt. My prayer is that each of us would always remember to seek Christ first. And when we are tempted to go seeking after other idols, to remember that they never satisfy, that even though we may be tempted to drink the salt water, we know that it just makes us thirstier. But instead, we can come to the pure water of the fountain of life. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you for your word. 
Help us to apply it and help us to seek you first. We confess many times that we are tempted to turn away from you, sometimes in despair, sometimes almost imperceptibly, gradually, other things come in and they choke and they strangle and they, they overwhelm us. And sometimes, oh Lord, there is a, a hardness and a coldness within us. Help us, our God, melt our hearts. Enable us always to seek your goodness and your glory. May it be that we would rejoice in you and that we would continually return to you and seek you. May we feed and drink from the bread and water of life. For we ask it in your name. Amen. We're going to sing the song.